iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We're going to look back and thinking, so wait, we were cutting down the Amazon rainforest to make burgers. And at the point where you can just eat every kind of meat product that you want without doing any of that and without destroying the planet and without throwing billions of animals into a factory farming machine, those things will start to look obscene. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Happy Thanksgiving. I am mostly off this week, but I did promise that last week, despite the holiday, We'd be posting a pod, and here we are, and this one is appropriately about food. Specifically, believe it or not, Clean Meat, another one of these companies. I know we, um, we've we done a few of these this year, but uh, it, it really is one of the most kind of interesting and heavily invested uh, sectors at the moment, especially certainly in biotech. And this one's a bit different, not just because they're really leaning in to this idea that what they're doing is not raising animals, but brewing their cells in industrial vats. They're called Sci-Fi Foods. And the chief executive is Josh March. And what he's doing is not trying to bring 100% brewed beef, but mixing it instead with a small fraction of of kind of those brewed cells, while the rest is plant-based. And the calculus is that that mix will still bring the right flavor, texture of minced meat, etc. But being able to dramatically reduce the cost of what it would otherwise cost for just 100% lab-grown beef. The timing is also very interesting for this episode, I will say. Because just this month, about a week ago, the FDA approved the first cultivated meat product in America. Upside Foods, who listeners may recall, uh, I went there earlier this year. They're working on chicken. I had the chicken on the pod It tasted like chicken. And the regulator last week ruled that it was safe to eat, which was a first in America. Now it's up to the USDA to give final approval before it can go on sale here. But for an industry that's been working on this kind of technology for more than a decade, it's a big moment. And getting back to sci-fi foods, they're going after beef which is even bigger than chicken. It's kind of the white whale, if I'm mixing metaphors, of cultivated meat because it's the biggest product line. It's the single most destructive in terms of methane emissions, rainforest destruction, etc. And so we bring March on to talk about kind of where we are this moment in the industry, talk about how he ended up doing this from where he started, studying law in the UK, doing a social media software startup in New York, and then coming out here to the West Coast to tackle the burger problem. So we talk about that whole winding path, why he's taking this hybrid approach, and why he thinks cultivated meat will eventually totally supplant industrial agriculture. The cow will no longer be something we eat. It'll be something that is brewed in a factory. 
It's a big idea with many mountains yet to climb. And it's not even sure that those are climbable mountains, but we talk about it all. So without further ado, here is Joshua March of Sci-Fi Foods. Enjoy. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in your kind of universe and I guess my first question for you before we kind of get into the whole backstory is why burgers? Because, and I know that burgers is obviously a gigantic market, but it also feels like it's crowded. Yeah. So why don't we start there? <laughs> yeah. So why burgers? I mean, look, first of all, why beef? Right. And beef, while it's incredibly tasty and I eat meat. I love burgers. Beef is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, all meat is bad, but beef is really the worst by a very large margin. You know, it's the least efficient of all meats in terms of calories in to calories out. It's yeah. actually just like 3% efficiency. It's responsible for 30% of global methane emissions, which is, you know, 30 times more potent than, than CO2. Which is all ba- cow burps, right? Cow burps, indeed. Yeah, and a bit of the like... Uh, manu- coming off the manure as well, yeah. but, but mainly cow burps. And 80% of rainforest deforestation is related to the cattle industry in some way, you know, either for pasture land or to grow crops to feed the animals, right? So beef's like this massive problem that, that keeps getting worse and worse. And you know, the only solutions on the market today are you know, pure plant-based meat, and, you know, companies like Impossible and Beyond have certainly way better products than the previous generation, you know, and, and really showed that there was this kind of, there is this flexitarian marketplace of consumers who eat meat, but who are interested in eating less if you give them good enough options. But at the same time, you know, I think it's really clear from anyone looking at the market today that the products aren't quite good enough yeah. to actually persuade the majority of people to switch over their habits. They've definitely expanded the market beyond just vegans or vegetarians, but like most people who've tried them, who eat meat, don't think they taste good enough, right? And people are not really, even if they philosophically agree with eating less meat, they're not prepared to spend more for a product that tastes worse. You know, I've always viewed cultivated meat as the kind of ultimate solution, Mm. right? For, For how can we actually transition people away from conventional meat? Because fundamentally cultivated meat is real meat, just produced in a better way. Now, there are a lot of challenges with cultivated meat around cost and scale. And one of the ways that we're solving those is by doing blended products. And so the products that we're making are still primarily plant-based, but using a small percentage of cultivated cells, beef cells that bring in the fats and the proteins that actually create that flavor and experience of meat and using those as a flavoring ingredient. So we experiment with a variety of different percentages and we haven't settled them. And there'll probably be various different products over time. But if you look at the percentage of like fat in a conventional beef burger, a lot of the species specific, the beef flavor comes from that fat. And, you know, that's like five to 20% of the product and has a huge, huge impact on flavor. And we think something in that range is where we've seen from our experiments. The classic 80-20 mince meat, basically, for a burger. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And we've seen stuff that in that 5 to 20 range is where you have like a really big impact on flavor. So anyway, so that's why we're doing what we're doing and why 
it's actually very differentiated to anything that exists on the market, which is purely plant-based, right? And still has this big gap. And on the flip side, you know, we're obviously in the cultivate the wider cultivated meat space. And for various reasons, beef has proven technically very challenging to do. There aren't actually many companies working on cultivated beef in the world. There are lots of companies working on cultivated meat in general, yeah. but a lot of those have ended up focusing on chicken, which is easier, or fish. And is that because they're more expensive? Because isn't the could the big challenge here cost? Like, you know, you can kind of, it feels like we've got to a point where over the past 10 plus years, figuring out how to make this stuff, using precision fermentation to make meat cells of virtually any variety. But it's a question of like, how do you do that in any way that's even remotely economic? Correct. And that is the big challenge. You know, ultimately... There are two ways of looking at that, which is the cost of the end product and the cost of just growing animal cells. Ultimately, it's our firm belief that the cost of cell culture, the standard cost of cell culture, if you just take the normal behavior of an animal cell, is orders of magnitude too expensive mm. to make a food product, which really governs our technical strategy, which I can talk a lot more about. But when it comes to beef versus chicken versus fish, we feel strongly that all of the first products will be kind of ground products. They're the easiest to make by a really big margin. Because it's hard to create things with like the right fibers, et cetera. Scaffolding, so to speak. Exactly. Ultimately, you know, we as humanity have been collectively growing animal cells in bioreactors for decades. You know, it's been done in the biopharma industry for a long time. The output of that process is just cells. Now, those cells could be really tasty meat cells of all the fats and the proteins that, that create that flavor and experience of meat but it still sells. It's like a meat paste, right? It's not, it's not a piece of muscle. The technology to take those, those cells and turn them into 3D structured muscle tissue and fat tissue is really much more nascent. And it's still very complex and expensive. And no one really knows how to manufacture it at scale. You know, completely novel kinds of bioreactors and hardware need to be invented before that's actually possible. Yeah. And we don't see any of that happening for quite a long time. So that's part of why. So we think you can use cells as flavor and it's easiest to do in a ground product. Now, when it comes to ground meat, beef has the highest price per pound of any ground meat product and the biggest market size of any ground meat product, right? And the most consumer demand for meat alternatives and the biggest climate impact. So really it's the most attractive to go after on pretty much you know, any way you cut it. But technically cultivated beef has proven more challenging than cultivated chicken and some other types and some fish. So I want to get back to the science in a bit, but I also want to kind of get to Sci-Fi Foods as a company. So what is the story of the company? Because it feels like uh, you guys have kind of emerged from the shadows relatively recently. So if you could just take me through kind of the founding of the company and kind of the money you've raised, kind of where you've got to as a company. Yeah. So the real uh, inception of the company goes back a very long time. I actually first came across the idea of cultivated meat reading a science fiction book 15 years ago. Which book? It was called Player of Games by Ian mm. M. Banks. Okay. I'm a big, big sci-fi fan, big Ian Banks fan. And in his kind of post-singularity uh, culture, society, you know, he talks in multiple books how they cultivate meat from cells and bioreactors and tanks instead of growing animals. And the books are never about it, but it's just a line that's in there. Yeah. And cool side note, he actually uses the language cultivated. And he wrote those books like in the late 80s. And that's the term the industry now uses, which is awesome. But as soon as I read about that idea, 
it just seemed obvious to me that that had to be the future that we built. And it became this like kind of obsession slash secret plan of mine. You know, I was busy starting these other companies, but I was like, I got to eventually go and invent the technology for cultivating meat. And, you know, companies can take a long time to come to fruition. So I, I had a, a company that I'd started that I was working on at the time that was in the social media and software space. And that ended up getting acquired, but we'd spun out another software company that raised venture capital and ended up being a kind of eight plus year journey of that company before that eventually got acquired. And I was in a place where I could. Yeah. So could, well, so why don't we just go there now though? So, so what is your history? Cause obviously you're not from San Leandro, I'm guessing. Yeah. No, I'm British. <laughs> uh, so where, where in the UK are you from and what was your kind of your previous companies? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town called Malvern in Worcestershire. I went and studied law at Durham University. That was where I did my first startup, which was an e-commerce company doing eco and fair trade homewares. Eco and fair trade homewares. So like, what was your like main product? I'm trying to envision what that is. It was like, you know, glassware and lights and lamps and things like this. The, the story there, it sounds like what, what was a 20 year old law student from Malvern doing that for? My mom had recently moved to Kenya and was living in Africa. Oh, wow. I've been spending some time over there and um, I've been kind of getting interested in startups and business and at the same time had basically been exposed to like various companies that were like doing fair trade and these other kind of products from Africa. And I just felt there were some really amazing products that were often not really being sold very well, you know, essentially being kind of sold by hippies and mm. not really like being marketed very well or wrapped up very well, but like yeah. the products were great and, and the, 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 reasoning and the motivation behind them were great and so i was like if i can just get all the best quality of these products and put a really like nice website and design it really nice and sell them to yuppies that was the kind of the idea how'd it go no oh, terribly i had you know had no idea what i was doing i took out i took out a big bank loan the whole thing failed this was before the last financial crisis so i wrote a 67 page business plan after reading business plan for dummies and um took it into HSBC and they gave me a hundred thousand pounds. Wow. As a 20 year old law student with no business experience. I'm um, stunned that they gave you that money. Yeah. I was pretty stunned as well, honestly. Um, <laughs> but I, but I went about setting up the company and, uh, you know, did eventually figure it out. Had built a team and built a website and looked at kind of firing the team and building a new website myself and eventually got a business that was kind of making money. But by that time, had kind of blown through the loan and had repayments and didn't know anything about fundraising or venture capital at the time. I ended up having to shut the company down. So that was a, it was a very painful learning experience. I was going to say, did it kind of ruin you financially for a while? Yeah, no, I was in tons of debt and um, ended up living with my uncle in London for a year and a half. It was a fun story, actually. He said, he said I could live with him for a few months while I figured out my next thing and I eventually, eventually could afford my own apartment a year and a half later. So very grateful <laughs> for that. Uh, and like, yeah, that was a very stressful time because my, my mom was telling me to get a job uh, and I was determined to go start another company and was working on a new space. Um, right, 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 right. Yeah, but, but learned, learned some very valuable lessons, which have stood me in good stead today. So what was the next thing you started? Was, you know, one of the things that I'd really failed at was marketing. And online marketing and i just started learning everything i could about that space and social media and facebook had just started coming about i got pretty excited by facebook's new developer platform which they just launched it was like 2007 and i thought it was a huge opportunity for companies 
to start engaging with customers in, in a new way. And so I started learning everything I could about it, started learning how to program and meeting up with software engineers who were building Facebook apps in the early days and started cold calling companies and telling them they should be doing Facebook apps. And no one else was doing that in 2007 in London. And so they took my call, despite at that point, I was basically a 21 year old, <laughs> no real experience, but, uh, you know, was figured out how to build some Facebook apps and companies started paying, paying me to do it. So ended up turning that into a, an agency that became one of Facebook's first ever preferred developers in the world. We were the only one in the UK for a time and ended up forging a very close partnership with Facebook. And that became a profitable company, which allowed me to pay off my previous debt. But yeah, the more I got into tech and startups, the more I wanted to do something bigger and scalable. And mm. so we ended up founding a, a, a software platform company out of that that spun out called Conversocial that we raised venture capital for that was helping big brands do customer service and engagement over social media and then eventually messaging and AI and bots and everything like that. You mean like Twilio? No, it was the actual platform that was being used by customer service agents I see. Uh, to do customer see. service over like Twitter and Facebook. Right, and right, like right. That. And that became like an eight, eight year journey. Uh, and that was venture backed and was eventually acquired by Verint. They're an uh, Israeli public software company. What year was that when it was acquired? So it actually got acquired last year. I stepped. I was on the board. I stepped down in 2019 in order to found Sci-Fi. And was the exit kind of like a life changing thing for you, like financially, or was it kind of like so-so, or kind of how'd it go? It was a good outcome, but it wasn't like it wasn't a unicorn. Right, right, right. You know? But it was a meaningful. It was a meaningful company that was driving real revenue, and you know, Google was a customer, was a major customer. Facebook was a major customer. We had tons of major like airlines and brands. Right, right. So in 2019, you step away to start Sci-Fi. I'm curious because you did that basically through the whole kind of glory era of social media when it was just everything was up and to the right. Yeah, indeed. So that must have been quite a nice rising tide. But so when you left in 2019 with this idea to start a cultivated meat company, how'd that go down? Like, I mean, did you have your own money by that point to start it or did you have to raise venture capital? And if so, like, what was the response? Yeah. And, you know, it had been a long lead up. Like I said, I, I'd been thinking about it, it had been kind of my secret plan for like a decade by that point. And a few years earlier in 2016, I had started to come across some of the first scientists and entrepreneurs kind of working on cultivated meat. And at first it was very exciting, you know, cause I was like, oh wow, other people had this idea as well. It's not just me to make this happen. And I started to get involved as a, an investor and an advisor and donor and just learning as much as I could about the science and the technological challenges. and at first, I wasn't really sure at that point, would I start a company in the space? So I was like, well, maybe this is just happening without me and I'll just be a supporter and great. You know, ultimately, I just want it to be successful in the world. But the more that I learned, the more I realized that there were these major technical challenges that were going to prevent cultivated meat from reaching the cost and scale that it actually needed to have if it was going to have a big impact on the world. And I started to become pretty disenchanted with what I was hearing from other companies in the space about how they were going to solve those cost challenges and basically started to feel pretty strongly that if cultivated meat was going to be successful and have an impact, I would kind of have to go and start a company in the space myself and, you know, bring the kind of you know, decade plus experience of founding and running venture back startups at that point to do things a little differently. 
did you have a scientific co-founder? Because obviously there's like, there's writing software and then there's growing animal cells at scale for human consumption. I mean, that's wildly different. Yeah, no, and I was lucky that kind of early on in the journey of this that I ended up teaming up with my now co-founder, Dr. Kashapura, who's super smart scientist. You know, she was Caltech and MIT and then spent a decade in the symbio industry, including six years at Symogen where she was an early employee. Oh, wow. From employee 18 to like employee 900 or something. And where they were really pioneering high throughput genetic engineering for Symbio. How did you come across her? How did you guys meet and decide to start a company? Yeah, I mean, it's basically luck. We, we met on LinkedIn. Really? LinkedIn yeah. actually works. <laughs> LinkedIn actually actually works. I wouldn't have expected it, but it, um, but it worked out. And um, the kind of original kind of founding insight that I kind of brought was uh, this idea of doing blended products. Right? and just using the cells for flavor, which kind of removed all these challenges around structure that are so hard and simplified the problem a lot. And the remaining problem was just like, how can we grow these cells cheaply enough? And she was very excited by that idea because she knew that she could bring her experience of Symbio and the Symbio approach and toolkit to actually engineer cell lines that could be grown cheaply. Right, because Zymergen was like for, for, I mean, it didn't end up well for Zymergen, but obviously they're doing a lot of like pathfinding stuff around synthetic biology and precision fermentation and using training sales to produce any number of things. And yeah, and we could go deep on Zymergen, like fundamentally company with great technology, but never quite figured out how to turn it into like a viable commercial business. Right. And they were kind of exploring various different things. And I actually think they ended up in the right place of like, oh, we should just become a product company. But by then it was kind of too late, unfortunately, with the markets. But ultimately, the approach is the important one. Right. And fundamentally, our key insight is that the reason that cultivated meat is so expensive, the reason that animal cell culture is so expensive is because if you take an animal cell from a cow muscle or whatever it is, that cell has all of these different characteristics and behaviors mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with how it tastes, but which do make it really complex and expensive to manufacture. And using technology like CRISPR and the Symbio approach, which I can talk more about, but is essentially using a combination of automation and data science to be able to make you know, huge numbers of tiny genetic changes and run these engineering cycles where you can you know, quickly experiment and figure out what changes actually work and then run these iterative cycles to shift cell line before you know, phenotypes and behavior. But we could use that approach and that technology to basically solve those challenges and very, very quickly create animal cell lines that can actually be manufactured at large scale and low cost. And we really see that as the key unlock to make cultivating meat commercially viable and the only approach that actually will work for beef for various reasons as well. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. So in 2019, you guys get together, you decide to step back from kind of the CEO role at your previous company, but then what, like, how do you start this company? Do you start raising money? 
do you immediately move out to California? Like, you know, how did that kind of transpire? Yeah. So, you know, 2019, it was really just a concept that I had. And, you know, because of my experience raising money and, and being a CEO, you know, I was able to basically email kind of friends and raise an initial half million dollars and kind of friends and family just off an email and the kind of idea that I was doing this. And then I basically used that to be able to just work on a, a fundraising deck basically to and go out and do fundraising for a seed round. And we ended up raising uh, a $6 million seed round at the beginning of 2020. And that's when Casher joined and started building the lab and the team. And we ran very quickly to build out our initial proof of concept and the techno-economic modeling and the development we did over that year, including product prototyping, enabled us to raise what became a $22 million Series A uh, from Andreessen Horowitz. When did you raise that money? Well, we, we actually announced it uh, earlier this summer. And the $6 million, where did you get that? So uh, Box Group and Valor Siren Ventures co-led that round. Box Group? Box Group in New York. They're one of the most prolific early stage investors in New York. Uh, okay. And then I moved out here beginning of 2020 as well. Why? Why leave London to do this? Oh, well, okay. The other story is that I'd left London 10 years ago. I was living in New York for eight years. Oh, you were um, running that whole company in New York. I see. Yeah. Copper Social, I'd started in London. And then I, uh, when it launched in the US, I actually moved to New York. I see, I see, I see, I see. And so I'd been living in New York for eight years and you know, a number of things came together. You know, we were really just thinking a lot about where it made sense to put the company. And I ultimately concluded that for doing a kind of biotech company, New York was a really challenging place to do it in terms of talent, lab space, like everything else, it would be extremely hard. And the kind of biotech hubs in, in the US, the main ones are Boston, Bay Area, San Diego. And ultimately, I felt that for doing what we're doing, and especially with food tech as well, like San Francisco and Bay Area was the place that made sense. Right, right. Just in terms of the talent and the capital. Yeah, exactly. So on that you know, because it sounds like the kind of founding principle or one of the driving reasons you found the company was to get something like this, an alternative meat to the market earlier than you thought it would otherwise arrive, given whatever everybody else is working on. So where are you along that? Like how long before we see, you know, I'm presuming you're not going to call these sci-fi burgers because no one would buy them because I'd be like, oh my God, I'm eating Frankenfood. So I imagine... Um, we should have a chat about that. We're not so sure, actually. We haven't decided what we're actually going to call the burgers. But um, but yeah, we did choose the name Sci-Fi Foods quite purposefully. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, the biggest question or concern around cultivated meat or as basically all of the media still call it lab-grown meat, is that it's kind of scientific and a little weird and sci-fi. And ultimately, we don't think we can kind of avoid that by just calling it like nothing to see here foods and trying to make it sound as natural <laughs> as possible. You know, like ultimately yeah. that won't come across as authentic and people won't trust that. And fundamentally, we think we need to take something that people are going to view as sci-fi and figure out how to make it cool. And it is sci-fi, but it, actually it's awesome that we can grow real meat without the animal. And we are using new technologies to do that, but we can talk about those technologies. We can talk about why they're safe and we can talk about the benefits um, and exactly why we're using them. It's an interesting strategy actually, because I know that uh, 
you know, you have the Cattlemen's Association and others being like, you can't call this meat. And the kind of there's there's a whole kind of simmering fight. And I think a much bigger fight coming as some of these products start to hit the market of like, what can you even call these quote unquote lab grown fish or poultry or beef or whatever? And maybe it's there's a generational breakdown, but I feel like maybe younger people would be more willing to be like, yeah, I'm having a quote unquote a sci fi burger. Whereas like my dad, who loves his steak on, you know, Saturday night, would probably not touch it with the barge pole because it's like, wait, there's a science fiction meat. No, thank you. Yeah, no, that's true. But would your dad buy a lab grown burger if it was called something else? I don't know. Well, but this is the point. Like maybe I don't think he would, but I think that's kind of I guess the, the 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 crux of what you're talking about is if you just say, well, look, look, this is meat. And then in the fine print is like, this was precision fermented in a big tank that looks like, you know, it looks like a brewery vat. Look, ultimately, years into the future, our approach will make products that are cheaper and cheaper and, and more and more available. And climate change is already starting to put pressure on herd sizes and, and conventional meat prices, and that will keep happening. And there will come a time in, in the not too distant future where, you know, the cultivated option becomes the normal. You think that flippening, so to speak, will happen? It will happen, but it'll take a while to get there. And in the meantime, cultivated meat will be a premium option. Now we need to work as fast as possible to get it down, but people are going to be buying it because they are purposefully wanting to buy it. Yeah. Right. They're not going to be buying it by accident. And I don't think we should be trying to rely on that. But, you know, in this day and age when trust is really built on transparency and openness and authenticity and being bold. You don't want to sneak it past people. I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. And so we'd rather be upfront about it and be open in our talking about the science and communication and have a very bold brand that, that is open and authentic about it. And, you know, some people will hate that. And that's okay because, you know, if you want to make a brand that people love, it can't just be universally like boring. And so you've got, you've got, to, you've got to be a little bold and a little out there. So you say you're calling at the moment from uh, your facility in San Leandro. So getting back to the question of, you know, reaching the market and at what price point, like where are you along that trajectory? And also what is the regulatory path? I imagine you have to do some kind of fairly arduous stuff with the FDA to to be able to get it onto the market, but maybe you don't, I don't know. Yeah, we just started working on our first pilot plant. That pilot plant will be ready in the next year or so. Our goal is to be able to produce burgers for about $30 a burger out of that pilot plant. We are also in the consultation process with the FDA at the moment. We think it will probably take us till the kind of end of 2024 to have completed that process with the FDA and the USDA and be in a position where we can actually start commercially selling uh, our burgers in the US. So that's our goal. And those would be start, you'd start selling those at 30 plus dollars per burger? That would certainly be our cost. Whether we sell them for that or not is a different question. Yeah. But the goal would be to pretty quickly drop that down to about $10 a burger in the pilot plant. And our goal will then get down to, to get down to about $1 a burger cost once we have moved into a full-scale commercial facility. 30 to 1 feels like a big leap. And I know that's kind of the story of technology, but I also know that science generally is harder 
are there hurdles that you have to overcome that you haven't figured out yet? Or is this simply a question of scaling? Yeah, our approach is a little different to others in this regards. And you're right that science is different to kind of software and Moore's law doesn't necessarily apply. You know, actually biology is complex and there's, there's lots of physical constraints. And so showing that you've dropped prices by 50% or dropped your cost by 50% doesn't necessarily mean that you can keep dropping them at the same rate. You know, one of the things that we did right from the beginning is kind of start with the end in mind. And we pulled in process development engineers that built large-scale manufacturing facilities and developed a full techno-economic analysis. So this is a model, kind of a really complex financial model that you basically map out all of, diff all of your inputs you know, down to like the energy usage of bioreactors and the cost of the amino acids that you're feeding the cells. Uh, and you have all the different performance ways that the cells behave in that model uh, so that you can understand what the cost of the final product will be. And we use that analysis to understand, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to achieve in order to get down to that dollar a burger cost? Mm. Our approach to that is to say, we don't want to assume any third-party innovation. We don't want to assume that anyone's created novel bioreactors that make, make things cheaper or can get to higher cell density. We don't want to assume that there's a supply chain where you can get really cheap reagents and ingredients to feed the cells. Like Maybe that happens, but maybe it doesn't. That's why our approach is basically based entirely on our ability to engineer the cells, to shift the way that they behave in order to get those economics to work. And so we've kind of really minimized the miracles that you need to believe and minimize the scientific risk. And the question is just, can we engineer ourselves in that way? And fundamentally, we know that the, all of the things we're trying to achieve are very biologically possible. They've all been achieved in different cell lines in different contexts. And we're using the symbio approach to do it very, very rapidly and, and in a cost-effective way. And so we know exactly what we need to achieve and we're running constant iterative engineering cycles to get there. Now, will we get there on the exact time frame we planned out? Probably not, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. the main uncertainty, but we have complete confidence that we will get there. We're not relying on any miracles, any third-party innovation, or trying to get ourselves to do anything that the animal cells can't do. So just so I understand, so you're doing a lot of these like iterative engineering cycles effectively through like modeling. No, actually engineering the cells. So, okay. so we use we use CRISPR technology um, to allow us to make these very targeted and tiny genetic changes to our yeah. cells. Now, uh, it's technically in some areas it would not be considered GMO because we don't put anything new. There's nothing transgenic. There's no foreign DNA. You're just taking things out. Or sometimes doubling up a copy of something that's already in there because we want to just generally the only things we're doing we're like increasing or decreasing the expression of certain proteins that are already in there. Um, there's nothing new. By shifting the expression of different proteins, we can change the behavior of the cell in all these really important ways. Right. But the thing about biology is that biology is very complex, and it's impossible to predict exactly what genetic change will create the behavior shift you want. You can have kind of high level ideas. And so the big learning of kind of symbio over the past five, 10 years is that, well, instead of trying to predict exactly, use automation, use data science to do, you know, experiment with a really large combinatorial kind of landscape of these tiny changes and figure out empirically which ones actually work. And so you can test a hundred different changes with a hundred different cell lines at once using liquid handling robots and other infrastructure to, to have that kind of throughput. 
And then you can find the best ones and then the best cell lines go into the next round of engineering. Uh, and you can gradually constantly make improvements to your cell lines in that way. In terms of the regulatory process, I mean, you're using, um, again, this is, you're talking about something that's obviously food grade and using CRISPR to alter things, et cetera. You know, that makes people, especially people like regulators in Europe, very nervous. How high are the hurdles just from a regula regulatory point of view? And is it something that out the other end will have to have some kind of for lack of a better word, like a warning label being like, this is GMO or this is this, or this is, you know, something that's kind of denotes that like, there was a lot of scientific kind of work here that to kind of create this product. Yeah. A lot of regulators, like I said, don't consider it GMO because we're not putting any foreign DNA and regulators actually really like this approach because from a food safety perspective, if you're not putting in a new protein, then there's nothing in there that could cause like an out, like a toxic or allergic reaction, right? It's not like you've taken a, a random fish protein or something from a bacteria and stuck it into beef. Like there's nothing, it's only beef, right? There's nothing in there that you couldn't, you won't be eating if you're just eating a normal beef burger. So they really like it from a food safety perspective. Certainly in the US, they have a risk-based approach and, and there's no particular added challenge. And like fundamentally, and this is maybe what maybe people are trying to say they're non-GMO you aren't going to say, you know, if you take a cell from an animal, that cell will not grow in a large scale biomanufacturing process. Yeah. So if you're not using genetic engineering, all you're doing is constantly growing that cell in different con conditions and running these like constant evolutionary experiments where you're basically waiting for that cell, those cell lines to either mutate, have some kind of chromosomal rearrangements or epigenetic changes that shift the behavior of the cell and hope that you get the result that you need. And so any cell that can be manufactured in a bioreactor is not going to be genetically identical to a cell in an animal. There have been changes that have happened and genetic changes that have happened in that cell. The only difference is if you're not using CRISPR, you, you, know, you just get a ton of random changes and there's going to be tons of off-target and other impacts. Right. Uh, whereas we know exactly the changes we want to make, and we're just making those tiny changes, which often, by the way, are deleting a single DNA base pair just to stop a cell producing a protein. Those are the kinds of random point mutations that happen all the time in nature and can happen all the time in nature, but we're just able to do them in a very targeted way. And that allows us to get to the desired end effect very, very quickly with actually less, much less random mutation and changes that are going to happen in another process. So from a safety perspective, I think there's a good argument that creating a cell line using in this way using CRISPR could actually be much safer. And we know exactly what's gone on in a much better way than running random evolution experiments for multiple years. Right, right, right. And lastly, just in terms of like the kind of public readiness for this, have you guys done any work on that? Like for me, just speaking personally, like I'm very interested in this space and I'm very willing to try, you know, I've been to Upside Foods. We had them on the podcast earlier this year and, you know, I tried their chicken. Like I'm not squeamish about it, but a lot of people will be. And just trying to, again, I guess it goes back to that kind of labeling conversation around like how ready people are for this and how much of that is driven by educating people. Because most people, again, you and I know this, that burgers are hugely destructive to the planet. Most people don't know that. And most people don't care. You know, a lot of people are starting to realize it intellectually, right? They, they understand 
yeah. the, the impact of meat and beef on, on the climate. But when it comes to actually buying a product or choosing what to eat, right, that is largely an emotional decision. Yeah. And, you know, it's very hard to make a lot of logic around it. And an emotional in the moment decision is generally not going to be based on, well, this could have a, a, an impact on the climate in 15 years. And so ultimately, it just has to be a great tasting product, mm -hmm. right? With a fun brand that people connect with. We do do consumer research and look at culture and how people talk about meat and, and how people think about these things. Ultimately, there is a minority. When you look at the data, it's about a third of people are like excited and interested in cultivated meat. When you explain it, they're kind of excited about it. And then there's a kind of third of people who are kind of like neutral and not quite sure. Then there's a third of people who are kind of pretty anti, you know, you explain it and they just don't, they don't want anything to do with it. Right. And so your job is to find those early adopters at first, build a kind of cult following. And once people see people eating it and enjoying it and talking about how great it tastes and that it's safe, then that's what's needed to persuade the rest of the people. But I do think there is, there is certainly a, an education and a branding piece that has to go with it. I was talking to, I think it was last year, I was working on a piece on this whole universe. And I talked to Josh Tetrick at Eat Just and his kind of vision, he said something along the lines of like, you know, we're going to look, our kids will look back on our generations as almost like kind of Neanderthals where we're like a third of the planet's arable land is dedicated to plants that we then feed to animals that we then kill to eat. Do you think you know, where we are now, if, you know, casting forward 10, 20 years, that something like that is possible, like the change could be that dramatic? A hundred percent, that is the change that will happen. Now, how long will that change take? You know, I, I think that's a question. Do you think a hundred percent likelihood though, that we'll be like, I don't know, it's like, you know, when doctors used to promote smoking on TV, we'll look back and be like, you know, isn't that crazy how we used to eat meat, grow and cultivate meat and chicken and fish, et cetera? A hundred percent. We're going to look back and thinking, so wait, we were cutting down the Amazon rainforest to make burgers. And at the point where you can just eat every kind of meat product that you want without doing any of that and without destroying the planet and without throwing billions of animals into a factory farming machine, those things will start to look obscene. Right. I'm different from a lot of people in the industry. I, I, I eat meat. I was going to ask you that. So how are you treated <laughs> because it does feel like a lot of a lot of the industry kind of traces its roots back to the humane society and like it's like very vegan and a little bit almost tribal and if you're just like this red meat eater i don't i mean does that is that a thing <laughs> i think that when you look at the challenges that plant-based meat are having today right there's multiple reasons for it part of it is i think the anti-meat rhetoric the messaging around the plant-based meat industry has worked extremely well for San Francisco, New York, LA, flexitarians, climate conscious people who kind of lapped it all up. Go to Missouri and there are like pro-meat protesters with placards, you know, when Impossible try and launch something. You know, fundamentally, I, I don't think that language has worked. And the reality of the plant-based meat world is that it's, it was a lot of vegan activists trying to persuade meat eaters to stop eating meat. And, you know, I applaud them for everything they do. They've done great work. Like I agree with all the challenges that they believe are real, 
But I think it can be very powerful to be actually a meat eater who's saying, I want to make products that I want to eat for someone who eats meat, loves meat, yeah. loves burgers, you know, and I can connect with people, which ultimately is like 95% of the population who eat meat in a much better way that way. And I think that's important to do as a company as well and not to be trying to moralize people, but instead to just make a great product and a fun brand and, and be excited that this is like, we're building the future. You know, I think it's much more exciting to be building the future and eating the future than it is to be talking about the bad things we're trying to avoid. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Josh from Sci-Fi Foods. I want to thank you all for the ratings, for the reviews, for listening, for spreading the word, as you always do. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, And I hope if you're in America, you have a fabulous Thanksgiving. And if you're not in America, I'm sad for you because it's the best holiday of the year, in my opinion. It's like Christmas, but without the presents and the stress. It's just hang out with family and you eat a lot, too much. Um, and that's it. So anyhow, that's what I'm going to be doing this week. As I said, thank you as ever for listening. I am not writing this week. I may be tweeting here and there. So you can find me at Danny Fortson on Twitter, or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk if you have any questions, comments, etc. Have a fabulous week, and we'll talk to you very soon. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.